All right. Well, we are continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us for a while, uh, you know we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a while. Uh, so we are continuing to move forward through what is known as the seven woes. And uh, as I watch the news, which I don't think is very good for my mental health lately, and uh, I don't know about you, but it seems that uh, it seems like kind of around the world, people are becoming more and more comfortable with lying and more and more comfortable with hypocrisy. And you know, as we've talked about, obviously, it's on our, many of our minds is this war going on. You know, there's, a, there's a saying that's kind of a cliche, but it's, it's also true that the first casualty of war is truth. And uh, we certainly see that going on in the world today as we have these different narratives you know, being thrown around as to what's going on. But, but this isn't the first you know, time that we've been dealing with hypocrisy and, and truth and not truth. Uh, we've been told for a long time now that things, simple things that aren't quite as, as threatening as war, you know, just things like you know, global, possible global devastation, like you know, global warming. We've been told that uh, our carbon footprint needs to be, be made smaller so that we can keep the planet from overheating. But the fact that many of these high-profile messengers you know, fly around on their private jets as they share the message of you know, our carbon footprint being too big each time they fly one of these jets, it's something like 10 times the amount of a normal person's uh, carbon footprint in their lifetime is spent in one of these trips, it kind of rings a little hypocritical, uh, especially when we're told that they need to have these jets and fly around because they're important people giving this message, and then we see that they're giving these messages in important places like you know Cancun or the Alps to go skiing and things like that, and I think for a lot of us, it feels somewhat hypocritical. But it's not the only place we hear it. We hear it in, in commerce. We hear hypocrisy in, in the church. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of hypocrisy within the church, especially when it comes to hearing things like the people that are supposed to be caring for the people of God are also the f same folks sometimes abusing the most vulnerable in the kingdom of God, like the children. Things like that are, are those messages that are just kind of out there all the time, regardless if we're in a time of peace or in a time of war. And today we're continuing like, through this passage of Scripture, which I've already shared with you, is known as the seven woes, where Jesus really tears into the Pharisees for a number of issues, issues that he finds hypocritical. And in the fact, uh, the passages where he addresses each one of their issues, he begins with this formula, six out of the ten times, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And then he goes into whatever the issue is. Now let's talk a little bit about what it means to be a hypocrite. Because the word hypocrite is generally thought of as someone that you know, advocates or stands for one thing publicly but does something different privately. or they're, they're a whole different person. And I think to a certain degree, I mean, everyone has a little bit of hypocrisy in their life. You know, I do. Uh, the person that you know that stands up here is the same person that Cindy knows at home, but then there's certainly more. And sometimes that more isn't always all that great. You know, every, I think everyone kind of has a certain amount of their public persona and their private, which we don't really have to dig, you know, into, you know, start whipping ourselves over being a hypocrite. It's just the way that we are. But there are these times where hypocrisy can be particularly painful. And those times that is painful is when a person is making a claim where they're leading someone or leading a group of people uh, toward a direction or toward a way of life, and then you find out that they really don't they really don't believe in this themselves. 
or they really don't want to invest in this themselves. That's where the hypocrisy becomes very distasteful for us, I think. I know it certainly does for me, and it seems to be what people often will, will complain about the church. The world will complain about the church. They'll say, we're being hypocrites. And why is it bothering them that we're being hypocritical? It's because, you know, as a church, we're leading, the church in general, leading toward a certain vision of the world, of love and of peace. And to find out sometimes that it's the church itself that is being greedy or manipulative or hurting other people, those are those things that people find to be the worst part of hypocrisy when a person's leading another one direction but privately living another way. And when it comes to religion, I, th I think you're probably all aware that the accusation of hypocrisy has a long history in the church. And I think there's probably good reason for it. If you read the history of of, of the Western history, particularly where the church kind of, or the history of the church, wherever it's at, you have probably 90, 95% of the folks are just good folks and good clergy folks that are just trying to do the best they can to serve the Lord. But that significant small group of those that are really in it for themselves cause a lot of problems. And sometimes people are hypocritical in their, in their leadership. They don't even realize it, that they're being hypocritical because the message that they're teaching is just simply wrong but they haven't realized that it's wrong yet. But it's when, historically, when people of the church have used the status for their own benefit and not for the benefit of those that they're seeking to serve that you get this reputation of hypocrisy. And historically, this has been especially true when you have the mix of the secular power and the religious power coming together. Because when you have this mix of the secular power and the religious power coming together, where where the religion is trying to uphold the government and the government's saying to the religion, well, we're going to make sure you have enough money and, and we're going to take care of you as long as you say what we need you to say, that's when it really becomes an issue. For example, uh, I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago when this war started that, that, that the Byzantine uh, part of the, of the church, uh, which is what the Orthodox Church came out of, the Byzantine Empire, they just have a, a different mindset that the church always supports the government no matter what. And I don't know if you noticed, but the, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow declared that everything, everyone in the Ukraine was morally evil. And so that, so that there is a, a sort of religious blessing upon this invasion. And this is where the church and the state, the, the, the Russian Orthodox Church will support the government of Russia no matter what, and they expect vice versa. The government of Russia tries to make sure the only real church, the only church that, that gets any kind of support and stays up is the Orthodox Church. And there's this mix together which leads to a lot of hypocrisy. And it's somewhat ironic because you have the patriarch of, of Moscow saying that everything in, in the Ukraine is morally evil, even though most Ukrainians themselves are Orthodox. And you have the patriarch of, of Kiev saying that, you know, what's going on? And everything in Russia is morally evil, and it's just bringing together. But one of the main issues that happens when you have this mix is really what ends up happening, and historically has happened, is that the church and state, when they work together, it becomes kind of a money machine. There's this, kind, there's this, there's this giving into the church that then goes into the government, the government gives into, and, and the government, uh, because the church kind of gives the moral backing to whatever the government's doing, the government will make sure that the, the clergy are paid well, and there's this kind of money machine that gets generated. And this, has become, this becomes one of the biggest hooks into this hypocrisy within the church. It's one of the reasons why in Germany, uh, 
when the BAFG, when our Bund was formed, it was formed with Baptist and Brethren churches. They were kind of forced together uh, by the Nazi regime. They were forced together to live, to try and work together, and they were hoping that they would just kind of devour each other. But early in the day, both the Baptists and the Brethren told the, the government in Germany they didn't want money from the state because they had the foresight to see what happens when money comes in from the state. It causes the, the clergy in particular to compromise because if I'm paid by the state, then I don't want to go against what the state says. And so, I, so the pastors and the clergy begin to kind of think, well, how's, how's my following and teaching the gospel going to affect my income? And so that's, that's why our church and other Baptist churches in the Bund that we're in, which is also German, it's not just English-speaking churches, we don't take money from the state. Uh, it's not because the state didn't offer. There was a time the state offered. Just like the Catholic Church gets money from the state, the Lutheran Church gets money from the state. They offered it. Uh, years, years ago, this is way back when, they offered it in the Baptists and the Brethren and other free churches who felt like they didn't want that, that potential compromise just said no. So that's why we're not supported by the state. We're supported by tithing. Anyway. So this, this money and power and, uh, that often comes from these things together leads to a lot of hypocrisy. And even when you don't have the state involved, like in the U.S., you have a lot of hypocrisy coming from false gospels, like the prosperity gospel, which is very prevalent in the United States, and it's very prevalent in a lot of African nations as well, which teaches basically that you know, God's blessing upon you is demonstrated by the wealth that you have. And so if you're wealthy and you're healthy, then that's proof of God's blessing. And part of the way that you are supposed to express God's blessing in your life is to live this life of conspicuous wealth. And this is why you notice a lot of the folks that believe in this prosperity gospel will have a lot of jewelry on and they'll, they'll you know, be dressed to the nines. A few years ago, a pastor named Creflo Dollar in the U.S., very appropriate name, Creflo Dollar, tried to crowdfund folks saying that he needed to have a private jet in order to do his ministry because we all know that the true men of God need to have private jets to fly around and share the gospel just like Jesus did. You know, if Jesus, he, was, he was, had the best private jets out there. Jesus only rode on a donkey once that we know of. Every other time he walked around everywhere he went. Now, this is where my hypocrisy comes in. I don't want to walk everywhere, but Jesus did. He certainly didn't fly in a private jet, and he never asked for the best horse in town. But this is how we kind of get all things messed up, and when, especially when it comes to money. There's, there's something about the power of money and how it affects human beings. And for those of you who are already bracing yourself for the tithing sermon, this really isn't a tithing sermon. This is really just mostly about how people tend to regard money. And so let's go into Jesus's. Uh, part of his speech to the, to the Pharisees here, and you'll understand more where this is coming from. He says this to them. Woe to you blind guides, you say. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater? The gold or the temple which makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, then he's bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. 
And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish and inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean out the inside of the, dish, of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. So in this passage, Jesus refers to two places where hypocrisy and money clash. One is in the taking of oaths and the emphasis is placed on the money in the temple or on the altar instead of upon what the money of what the altar and the temple represent, which makes it clear where people thought the priority of the money was, that the money was the important thing, not the temple. The money was the important thing, not the altar. And the other was the issue of tithing, but it wasn't that the Pharisees didn't tithe, but it was that the Pharisees believed that if they followed the law of tithing, that was enough, and they just kind of set aside the moral law which is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What Jesus is referring to when he talks about, you know, you've forgotten justice, you've forgotten mercy, you've forgotten faithfulness. He's kind of going back to that, that verse, which I often shared with you. It's kind of a verse I hover around when I'm not quite sure, you know, the direction that God has for me in his specifics, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's first talk about this issue of oath-taking. So we don't need to read through it again. He already, uh, we'll just kind of run, you know, he says, if you swear by the temple, you say that means nothing, but if someone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by that oath. And Jesus says, this is just dumb. What's more important? What's, what really is the thing to give emphasis to, the temple or the money, or the altar or the money? But what's interesting about this is that Jesus has already made clear his opinion about taking oaths in general. If you read chapter 5 in the book of Matthew, which we went through several months ago, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is like one of the first things he talks about, the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, take an oath, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, so that, and, he, and he kind of refers to the swearing by the throne here, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king, great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black or make them exist at all. And uh, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And it's interesting that, that Jesus' whole idea about oath-taking is, is simplicity. He says, you know, we shouldn't be a people that our integrity is kind of on the sliding scale of of how much we put behind our yes. If we say yes, it should simply mean yes. We shouldn't say yes, but I'm going to make it even more of a yes by saying yes, and I swear by the temple, or yes, and I swear by the altar. Because then you get this idea that yes is really just kind of maybe, unless you add on to it something that makes it really a yes. And so you kind of have this sliding scale of integrity when it comes to does your yes mean yes and your no be no? And Jesus says this is nonsense. If we're going to be a people of God, just let ourselves be people of God. 
Let's be people of God where our, meaning, where our yes means yes, our no means no, and not have this sliding st- scale of integrity. So Jesus is against the whole idea of oaths anyway. So when he talks about this, you know, you guys, you swear by the temple, yeah, he, he's kind of meeting them where they're at because the Pharisees, if Jesus said, don't swear by anything, the temple or the gold, they wouldn't have listened to him at all. So he's, he's dealing with them where they're at. But to get for us, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is really not in this whole idea of adding to your yes or adding to your no. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a people of integrity. So this, but, this, but the point that this teaching is, this, that Jesus is pointing out, as is the case of tithing with the Pharisees, is that they tended to put more emphasis on money than on the, the faith. They're putting more emphasis in the gold in the temple than upon the importance of what the temple represents. This is kind of this is pre-resurrection. This is you know it's a different, a little different mindset than what we have. We don't really put much stock in temples. At least our tradition doesn't. We don't really think of this building, for example, as a temple. The church isn't the building; it's the people. But this is kind of before this understanding is in place. And so Jesus is saying, "You Pharisees, you know you have this temple, but you think the money in it is what makes it sacred." instead of what the temple represents. And there's this altar. You think the gift on it makes it sacred instead of the altar and what it represents. It represents sacrifice. And then when he talks about tithing, it's kind of the same thing, except it's a different, you know, he, he just, it's basically the same idea. He's not saying that they don't tithe. The Pharisees do tithe. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth, which the word tithe means tenth. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. So he's not saying that they don't give. They do give. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. This is something that you'll often hear talked about in tithing, though people will will point to this, that you know you, you should not neglect, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. But the point he's really making here is that in both cases, money is where the priority is. Money is where the heart is in the giving. And again, for these folks, the money is the higher priority than the issues of God which are important to him. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. They've just gotten so into this idea of the power in, the, in this thing that we have decided is what we're going to say is powerful. You know, we, we give value to money. We said this shiny stone or this shiny bit of metal, this has value. Therefore, we're going to agree this has value, and then we just get sucked into it. And human beings have been sucked into the accumulation of wealth from the day we decided that particular shell or that particular shiny bit of metal or that little particular shiny rock has value to it, and we've been consumed by it ever since. And we do horrible things to gain this wealth. Sometimes they're actively horrible, like crimes against people to take money or to take wealth. Sometimes it's passive, where we sit and we watch people die and starve because we're afraid that if we release some of our money, that somehow then we're going to be diminished by it instead of seeing that we might be able to actually save a life. We get very focused on it, and man, we can get super spiritual about it too. We can come up with all kinds of God reasons why we need to sit on our little pile of cash. Why? Why do we struggle with this area so much? 
I think it's just that it comes back to that desire to be in control. We have this delusion that if we have enough money, we can control how our health is going to be, how our future is going to be, how uh, everything is going to be you know, good for us if we just have enough money. And it's so easy for us to trust in that tangible number in our bank account than to trust in a God that we can't see, we can't touch. And it's easier for us to say, this, this money, this bag of cash, this is where I can put trust in because I can get my hands on it and I can know exactly what it does. I know that if I retire and I have enough of it, I'm going to live well. I know that if I have a health issue, it's going to be taken care of. And in the place of God, we put faith in our money. And this is why we struggle so much as Christians and as just human beings when it comes to money and God. It's as close as we come to a true idol. And Jesus says that, you know, our faithfulness isn't found in just the giving. That's what he says to the Pharisees. It's not just found in the giving. He told the Pharisees, you do give. You give a full 10% of what, whatever it is that your income is in your goods and, goods and all that, but you don't do the things that are important to God, which is the justice and the mercy and the faithfulness. You seem to think that doesn't count. And really what's more important is just fulfilling this obligation to check off a box of giving. And Jesus says, this is, not, this is meaningless. It's meaningless if you don't follow those things which are important to God. If the money doesn't go toward the promotion of justice, if the money doesn't go toward the promotion of mercy, if the money doesn't go toward the promotion of learning what it means to walk humbly with your God, to be faithful, then it's just, it's just pointless. There's nothing special about it. There's no meaning to it. And this is why in the book of in the New Testament, you kind of get a different attitude. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Remember who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And I think it's important to understand what Paul is talking about here when he says that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. 90% of the time, if you ever hear a sermon on this, it comes, it's like a money-making scheme. The idea is, well, if you trust God with 1,000 euros, then you will reap back. You'll see God's benefit of 5,000 euros. And that's very often how this is taught. That's wrong. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. It goes back to what Jesus was talking about. You know, if you want to see justice take place in the world, if we want to see mercy take place in this world, if we want to see faithfulness grow, then we need to be willing to invest our resources into it. And if we only invest a little bit into it, then we're not going to see much justice in the name of Christ take place in the world. We're not going to see mercy extended to people in the name of Christ in this world. And we're not going to see the church thrive in the place of making disciples. If we put a, only a little bit of our, our material investment toward that, then we're going to only reap a little bit. But if we think that this is an important thing, to see justice and mercy and faithfulness extended out into the world in the name of Jesus Christ, then we have to be willing to put our resources behind it. And that becomes the question for the church today. How important is it 
that we are able to reach the nations with the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ because that is what our mission statement is as a church in IBCD, to reach the nations with the gospel and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. How important is that to you? The answer to that will be seen in what you are willing to give of your material wealth to, the, to this taking place, to the evangelization, to sharing the gospel, to being people of mercy, to being people of justice, to being people of faithfulness. How important is it to you? If we, if we give to it in a small amount, then what we'll see is the results will be small, a small reaping. If we give to it a lot, then the results will be a much greater reaping. That is what he's talking about when he says sowing and reaping. It's not sowing money to get money. It's sowing money to see the advancement of what is important in the kingdom of God. And this is where he gets back to with the whole idea of the temple and the, and the, and the altar. He said, you know, you, you, give this, you swear by the money in it, but the money without an attachment to anything that is important to God is just the money, but the temple doesn't really matter. In other words, the money, but the mission of the temple or the mission of the church, if you don't say the, the mission of the church is really what gives that money value, then all you've done is you've just given money to, to some organization. But it's the mission, if you, if you focus on what the mission is supposed to be, and in our case, to reach the world with the, with the gospel, reach the nations with the gospel, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ, if we all keep focused on that, then we'll see that, that, those, that those euros that we give, the money that we give to the church actually goes toward seeing the vision of God come to fruition in the world around us. That's what he's basically saying. And that's the take-home message for us. You know, money has an insidious way of becoming the most important thing in our life. And we want to deny it, but we fight it. And I know we fight it because I fight it, and you're not all that much better than I am. I have to be very conscious in my life of the role of money I have to be very deliberate because it sings its song of seduction to, my, to me just as much as it does to you. And the idea that, you know, am I going to be taken care of when I'm uh, retired? Which actually, retirement isn't a biblical concept, by the way. You never see the folks retire. They work uh, until they drop dead. You know, retirement is kind of a, a, a newer idea uh, that we have in our system, in our brains. But the idea, you know, what is this role? I have to remind myself because I'm just susceptible to, to wanting to, to have it to be my little, uh, that thing that allows me to do whatever I want to do. You know, buy whatever I want to buy. Basically, to live my life any way I want to live it. Have fun. Buy my toys. And I have to keep it in place with this, thankfulness and generosity. I have to always go back. That's the way I keep it. Keep, that, keep the, the power of money from overwhelming me. Because thankfulness reminds me, first of all, that I already have a pretty good life. God has always provided for me. You know, the, the pastoral life doesn't, isn't necessarily one that uh, pays a whole lot, especially when you're young and you're starting out. But Cindy and I, we never came to a place in our life where we couldn't pay our bills and we didn't have enough food to eat. There were times after we paid all our bills we had like 20 euros left in our bank account, or $20, because this was back in the early days. And I would just tell Cindy, well, we've got about $20 to make it through the rest of the month, and somehow we've always made it. Being thankful helps me put my trust in God and remembering in the past the way he's been faithful. And generosity, 
as, a, as we've gone on in life, and Cindy and I have had times where we've had more, especially when you know, we were both working, generosity then becomes the way to, hold on, to keep money in its place, to hold on to it loosely. Because when you're generous, then it doesn't have time to get its claws deep, deep, deep into your soul. You, know, you just kind of move it right on through. And I don't mean give away, you know, throw away money foolishly, but to be generous in those things that are important to you. The things of justice, the things of mercy, the things of faithfulness. And it's not always easy. There's always a reason not to be generous. There's always a reason to not be as thankful because someone else has more. There's always a reason. But what do you choose to focus on? What God has made as reality in your life? Or some fantasy of someone else's life that you want to live? What is it? How are you going to live? If you're going to live in someone else's fantasy or, or a fantasy of how someone else's life is, then you're never going to really find what treasures it is that God has in your life. Cindy and I aren't rich by any means, especially from a Western perspective, but our richness of our life has been pretty profound. You know, the richness that we've had living not just in the U.S., but in Europe and in Africa and Lesotho and different places around the world. It's just been a very rich life. The people we've met, the churches we've been a part of, I've been fortunate. I've never been part of a bad church, like some manipulative, weird church. I've always had wonderful experiences. Not always easy, but good, you know? I would not want to give that up just to sit on a pile of cash and be in fear that it's going to somehow be taken away from me. And I know, I know it's not easy. I know some of you have reasons that makes it hard to be thankful. You go through a season in your life, it's hard to be thankful. And I totally get that. But you know who else totally gets that? Jesus gets that. You know, who else would understand, you know, what it means to enter into this world and enter into our anxiety than Christ who leaves whatever that heaven is to take upon human nature and to walk into our brokenness and walk into it even into the ugliest places of human brokenness, brokenness which means his own crucifixion and death. Jesus understands the fear. He understands the anxiety. But he also knows that the fears and anxieties of this world are going to be passing away compared to the glories of eternity. And he wants us to know that too. And that's how we should approach money. It's a tool. But it's not a tool that's going to build our eternity by its intrinsic wealth. It's a tool that will add to our eternity or build our eternity as we allow it to shape us into people of justice and mercy and humility. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it just points out a lot of the issues that, uh, that we deal with as people. And, you know, there's a lot of negative examples in the Scripture there's even negative examples of churches, like the church in Corinth. But, Lord, we've learned so much from the mistakes of others and also uh, in this passage where you're talking to the Pharisees, you know, how that we can approach money in a healthy way. And, Lord, we pray. This is, this is a, a struggle that we will always have, I think, as long as we're living in this life of, you know, trying to, to balance the healthy place of wealth and money in our lives as Christians, while also knowing that we are people of eternity, money is temporary, 
We are people of eternity. Uh, material things are temporary. We're people of eternity. Even, you know, things like our church buildings, they're just all temporary. And to help us to, to separate out what it means to live with our eyes in eternity instead of upon the temporary, that is a huge struggle. And we just submit it to you, Lord. This is who we are. This is where we are. And you know this. This is no surprise to you. But Father, we pray that you help us to trust you more and to wean ourselves from putting our trust either implicitly or, or even just kind of, you know, not being aware we're doing it, but putting our faith into money, to being faith into goods, because it's really just, it's going nowhere. And Lord, help us to be a people who desire to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, and to give us Keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds as individuals and as a church that we are to reach all the nations with the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And you have given us resources to do so. May we use them to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.